So this is what the context is so far in John chapter 18. Jesus has left the garden. He's in the garden. And this is where we're going to pick up right now in verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, oh, by the way, uh, this there's a little bit more. Um, you have Judas who's just betrayed Jesus. And the, they have come into the garden. They confronted Jesus. Um, they all fall back after Jesus says, I am using the name of God. And Peter gets very confident and pulls out his sword and is going to prove to Jesus, I'm not going to leave you. Not only that, I'm going to whack this guy's head off, misses the guy's head and takes off his ear. And this is what Jesus says to him. Peter put, uh, verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Conversation over. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So let me ask you a question. What do those four verses mean? Do you have any idea the significance of what Jesus said and what John just wrote down? And what John is doing here, that's a, I know, most of you are probably saying, no, actually I don't. And if I'm completely honest with you, I have been struggling over these verses to, to find out why is it so important that John mentions these names, father-in-law, son-in-law, time periods, and he's going to do this for a while. Why is this so important? Well, John is assuming you know your Old Testament. And he takes that assumption into account and not giving you the explanation. I was uh, talking to one of the deacons this morning, and I was, I don't know what show I was watching, but the, this person is not from the United States, and they didn't really know the context of our, kind of the, the word pictures that we use. And so sarcastically, you know, this person says, American says, yeah, when it rains, it pours. <laughs> and this person said, sometimes. <laughs> like, they didn't get the understanding of what they meant. There's There's a context that's behind that. Well, John is picking up here on two major themes in the Bible, and he's assuming you know what they are. And this is why he's writing what he's writing, and and they're significant to John of why he wrote them. So the Bible is really, it's really driven by these two major themes. These themes can be seen as really the keys to understanding the flow of not only John 18, but I would say the flow of the entire biblical text. So when you miss these two important keys, you will feel confused at times with what's going on in this narrative of the Bible, but even what's going on and why John is recording these conversations and why Jesus would even say a phrase like, must I not drink this cup? So it can feel random and unnecessary to our everyday life. And I would even say, as I, like this is, I'm just going to let you in on some of the humor of what happens in my mind when I'm reading and preparing for sermons. But as I'm reading John, I'm almost thinking, John, are you trying to fill a quota here, like a word quota? You got to make sure you're, you're not the shortest gospel. You're going to leave that one to Mark. Okay, so I got to make sure that I'm going to have all the words that are necessary. This is almost what it felt like as I'm reading this. This is just a bunch of random information. Well, these next three chapters from what, I'm going to show you are probably one of some of the most significant chapters in all of the gospel as he's bringing his story to a conclusion. 
And I, what I want to explain to you is why. But in order for me to do that, I have to start back at the beginning of the Bible to do this. And I know we've already done this once, but we'll do it a little faster than the last time. So John references uh, these two major themes in these four verses. So I just want you to hold on to what I'm about to explain to you. We're going to come back and see what John is doing here. But for years, I had no idea what John was referencing. I went to Bible college. I was even in seminary before I fully understand what it is that John's doing here. And what happens in our modern context is most of us read our Bibles and we interpret it. In other words, we read it. This is what it says. This is what I think it means. We really don't understand how the Bible is unfolding from page to page. And I've often mentioned this, but the story of the Bible, the entire Bible is of God, of how God is redeeming sinners. That's the major theme. In other words, redemption is the big theme of the Bible. But that's kind of what I would call a 30,000-foot view. You would say, okay, yeah, I can see how the Bible is a story of redemption. But how does it actually work from page to page? What What's driving it? What makes this all make sense? Well, the Bible has many themes that it uses to help the reader follow along with the story of redemption. So here are the two themes that we're going to look at this morning. And the first one on, uh, first one of them is what's the concept of a curse. Now, when I say the word curse, many of us don't really associate the Bible as a major theme of curse. As a matter of fact, when we think of a curse, we often think of superstitious people. People who uh, hold on to rabbit's foot or won't walk under a ladder, right? They're, they're, they're superstitious that some kind of curse is going to befall them, that, that, that folly is coming their way. And curses are more found in, you know, fairy tales, Beauty and the Beast, or comedy movies. And these don't really feel like it should be a major key or theme of the Bible. But the entire Bible is actually structured around a curse from the beginning all the way to the end. So go with me real quick to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at just a couple of verses. We're going to work our way through the Old Testament. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 2. Here, just to save us a little bit of time, you have God putting Adam and Eve into the garden, and once they're put into the garden, he's giving them some instructions. He says, you can eat any any of the tree that's in the garden, but there's one tree in the garden that you can't eat of. And this is where we're being picked up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil you shall not eat, for in it the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this is what we would call cursed language. As the story of redemption keeps moving, we learn more about this curse, and it's referred to as a curse. Curses are divine punishment for dishonoring direct commands or direct words of God. So what did he say? Do not do this. If you do, here is the punishment. Here is the folly that will beset you. Now, some curses are definitely worse than others in Scripture. But the curses of death is the worst one that you can experience. And so he says from the beginning, the first interaction that we see between God and man is don't eat of this or less you will be under a curse and that curse is death. No, to be cursed by God, just to help us, and this will make sense as we follow it throughout the Old Testament, you will be separated from God and his blessings. This is often how curses are used. 
you will be separated from God and his blessing. So the concept of separation will be important here in just a little bit. So, so lock that away as we get finally to the New Testament. Now, of course, most of us know Eve eats of the tree and gives it to Adam, and they both fall under the curse, and they are promised uh, of what God promises, they shall surely die. Look at verse 13, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 14 and following. I just want you to hear the language. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbirth or in childbearing. And in pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat of bread. Uh, you will eat bread. You will return to the ground for it, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, I believe these smaller, lesser curses are reminders of the great curse that we live underneath today, which many of us are experiencing the curse of the earth. (laughs) All of us are working. All of us are toiling. And even the concept of thorns we'll get to in a little bit. But we live in a cursed world. We are, we are the, where the ultimate curse is faced, which is death, which he references. So Adam and Eve do not die at that moment. There's mercy given to them, but ultimately their payment is coming. But in there, there is a promise given. And he says, from you, Eve, will come a seed and that seed will do what? He will crush the head of the safe of the serpent. And what that is a metaphor, which we will learn later as the Bible is unfolding is the, is a reference to Christ who comes and receives, because it says his heel shall be bruised, receives this blow for correcting. Real quick, you can write this down just for the t- sake of time. I'm just going to read it to you. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And this is what Paul is doing. Paul is going to make a connection between Adam and you. And this is how he does it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spreads to all men because all sinned. This is the point Paul is making. The curse that was on Adam is also on you. The curse that was on Adam, if you disobey, you shall die, is also on you. So how is it that we can truly know that we are under this curse? That's the question. Because there is confusion. Well, I, you know, I I wasn't there. I didn't see this. Well, the story continues. And as the story continues, you then have God issuing a law, and the law is given to Israel. And in this law, there are set up, this is what's required. If you want my blessings and you want my protection, you must perfectly obey this law. And if you do, you will not be under this curse. And this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. So how is it that I know for sure that the curse of death, separation from God, which Adam acted and is now passed on to me, how do I know that I'm underneath that curse? And this is what Paul says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
So Paul is doing us a favor here and saving us time from reading the entire law this morning and saying this, the point of the law is this, if you do not obey God in every point of the law, it is proof that you are cursed as Adam was cursed. Therefore, all of humanity is cursed because they cannot hold the law. So the the problem created in the garden by Adam and Eve has to be fixed. God never designed the world where there would be opposition or there would be distance between us and human, uh, between us and God. And the way in which he promised that is a, as a child to Eve who would then crush the head of the serpent. Later on, that is explained to be the Messiah through Abraham. But this was a metaphor. And at this point, we are going, uh, he was going to destroy what caused that separation. Sin and disobedience is what caused the separation. So how is it that God's going to reverse the curse, which becomes this major theme? All of humanity proves they're cursed because all you have to do is keep reading in chapter 4 and following, and it's so bad God floods the world. And thankfully, he promised never to flood the world again, the promise we can hold on to today. But how is it that God's going to reverse the curse? Here's the second major theme. A tree. A tree. And I know this may seem subtle that a tree is somehow a major theme of the Bible, but let me show you how it's actually a huge key and what John is actually using to make reference to in his, in his chapter 18 and what a lot of the New Testament writers make connections to. So what caused the begin, what caused the curse in the beginning of this story? It was what? It was a tree, right? That was what caused it. So he points to this symbol and he says, from this tree, there's life or death. You obey me, you have eternal life. You disobey, a curse comes upon me, upon you, and you die. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. Throughout the Old Testament, there's these major stories we all know. And in these stories, the writer, which is ultimately the Holy Spirit, through these men, makes these themes come to life of curse and tree and restoration. So we know that the children of Israel end up in Egypt, which is a major theme, right? The redemption out of Egypt. And in this time, they're down to the last plague. And in the last plague, Moses comes to Pharaoh and says that if you do not let these people go, what's going to happen? We're going to kill the firstborn, not only of Egypt, but of anyone that's in Egypt. So Israel must obey this command as well. Of course, Pharaoh doesn't listen. But what does he tell the, what does he tell the Israelites, he said that you must take a perfect lamb, a spotless lamb, sacrifice the lamb, and then take the blood and point, uh, paint it over the doorpost. And listen to what the writer of Exodus says in chapter 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will be no plague will befall you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt so what three themes are we seeing here death by curse if you do not obey sacrifice by blood and applied to what what is the blood applied to the doorpost a tree so you begin to see these themes. What is the number one ceremony the children of israel begin to worship year in and year out The Passover. Someone's getting a warning there's a flood. (laughs) Let me know if we need to close the service down and I will speed this up quickly. (laughs) What's that? Uh, Yes. 
The Passover becomes this ceremony where every year they look back to what God did in Egypt. It's a symbol that's used year after year. The innocent lamb that's sacrificed, the blood that's a representative, and the remembrance that God is the one who redeemed them, redemption. He redeemed them out of their slavery or of the curse of sin. Now let's look over to Romans, I'm sorry, uh, Numbers. Turn with me, Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. So the children of Israel have been complaining to God, you're not feeding us, you're not taking care of us, we don't have water. And so this is how God responds to them. It's actually a curse. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the Israels died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now quickly, turn to John chapter 3 with me. What was on the stick or what was on the tree? What was on the branch that was held up? A symbol of what? A symbol of the curse. These people disobeyed. God used snakes as the reprobation or the payment for that. But is it not interesting what's put up on there is what a symbol of what was cursed in the garden? The reason I make this application is because Jesus makes this application. I'm not just making all these fun little connections. Christ makes the point, and he uses this story. Look at verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He is pointing to this theme of curse and tree being lifted up. And John will actually do this through his gospel all the way until we get to chapter 18. One final and probably one of the most important Old Testament references is found in Deuteronomy chapter 21. So turn there with me, Deuteronomy 21. Of course, this is that portion of your Bible reading that you all fall asleep in, are confused, and you just said you've read it, but you don't really understand it. But tucked in here is what John is assuming you know. Like, you know this. Because otherwise, what he references in 18 won't make sense to you. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 21, 18, in reference to obedience to the law. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and they discipline him, will not, and though they discipline them, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the, of the city of the gate, of the place where he lives, And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Now, I don't know about you, but I hear sometimes people say, Wouldn't it be awesome to live in the Old Testament and see the work of God? No. (laughs) No, it would not. But there's a reason why this is written. Keep reading verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death, 
and you hang him on a tree, his body shall be remain all, uh, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him at the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your hand that the Lord your God, sorry, your land that the Lord your God is given you, for it is an inheritance. So the Old Testament law was a picture of sin. This is punishable by death. We've already learned this by Romans. If you are guilty of any part of the law, you are guilty of death. You are cursed. We've already seen this as a picture. And then he makes the statement that those who hang on a tree are is the symbol of those who have been cursed. So the law was always designed to show us that we are under this curse. And it uses this picture of, again, what? Curse and what? Tree. Are you guys following this theme that's going on? Real quick, Galatians chapter 3, verses 13. We'll be now in the New Testament, so if you want to get over there. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Very powerful verse from Paul. It says this, Christ redeemed us from the what? The curse. Does this make sense to you now? The curse from Adam that was then further explained throughout the Old Testament, brought to life by the law. Our transgressions are guilty the way we are guilty. For Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And then he quotes Deuteronomy. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. You see it now again, the theme, a curse and a tree. He connected the whole story of the Bible in one picture for us. Christ becoming the curse for us on the tree. So when Jesus was placed on the cross, where all of us who deserved to be, according to the law and according to these illustrations of the Old and New Testament, he was placed there guilty, but not by his guilt, by whose guilt? by our guilt. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever wondered why the cross is so significant? Some may think, well, it's just because, well, that's just how uh, the Romans were killing people at the time. Or it may be that, you know, well, it's just, it doesn't really matter how Jesus died, it's that he died. Oh, no. How he died is of significance. It's of utmost importance because it's not only the sin that Jesus is Covering, it's our guilt and our shame, and the curse is being removed. Do you guys remember early on when I said, what does a curse do? It separates you. It separates you from the blessings and the presence of God. When Jesus is on the cross and he is finally hanging on a tree, he is there as guilty and as shamed. He's receiving the curse. What does he yell out? My God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus was being treated as one who was under the curse, who was being separated from God. This is why it says in Isaiah 53, 5, again, reminding us of what's to happen. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds, we are healed. He is talking, this is curse language. So why is John giving us these details of who Jesus is meeting in front of? I will have to give you a short answer today because we're going to run out of time, but I'm going to give you a fuller explanation in the next two weeks. Real quick with me, turn to Matthew chapter 20. 
right before Jesus is about to die, he pulls his disciples. He's, they're on their way into Jerusalem. He pulls his disciples aside. And this is why I want you to understand. Jesus knew he also was supposed to die on a tree because it was the fulfillment of shame. It was a fulfillment of the law that those who are cursed by God must hang on a tree as a symbol for all to see they have violated God. They are worthy of being seen and scoffed and shamed. What does Jesus say to his disciples in verse 17? And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, prophesying, by the way, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So right before they get into Jerusalem for the the Passover service, Jesus is warning them, I'm on my way to be cursed and put on a tree. Just to help us understand this, Peter and makes reference to this concept of being the tree and the curse. I'm going to just read these to you real quick. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, This Jesus, being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here's what Peter is acknowledging. God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross was not an accident or happenstance. It was according to the perfect plan of God from all eternity past. He goes on in chapter 5, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a what? A tree. Peter understands the symbol and why it's important. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says this. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. So what John is recording is the events that God orchestrated to guarantee Jesus would be executed by death on a tree. I'm going to have to explain this to you next week as we look at the history. But what John is writing is significant. Every step that's taken... John writes it down to show us exactly how God, through his sovereign will, marched Jesus down to the cross and made sure that Jesus became the curse on a tree for our replacement. This is why he gets mad at Peter and says, what are you doing? Do you not know? I just told you, Matthew chapter 20, I just told you I have to do this. I have to drink the cup of wrath, which Peter, of course, did not understand until after the resurrection, for he's the one who then said, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 5. So God's intentions was never for you to fix or maintain your standing before God. From the fall in the garden, the curse was set, and the only way to write the curse is to obey the law, and Paul says you can't do it. As a matter of fact, we are told by Paul that the law cannot make you righteous. It only can prove that you are not righteous. This is why Jesus came proving his righteousness by fulfilling the law. This is the less, the second part of the gospel we're going to unfold in John. Through John 18 and 19, you know what Jesus experiences? Accusations that are never founded. Do you know why that is so important? Jesus is never proven guilty. Do you know why that's important? 
Because if he's proven guilty, he cannot be the replacement for you as a curse. He has to take on his own curse. So what John says in chapter 18 is so important for two massive reasons. One, he proves that God sovereignly designed to save you by replacing you on the tree with Christ. And secondly, Christ was worthy to be our replacement. 